1: And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Suzanne Brown-Fleming. Suzanne is director of the Visiting Scholar Program at the Jack, Joseph, and Morton Mondale Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. She's also the author of two books. The first is a study of the American Cardinal Aloysius Munch one of the key figures in shaping German and German-American responses to the Holocaust in the years after the end of the war. Her second is the brand-new Nazi Persecution and postwar Repercussions, the International Tracing Service Archive and Holocaust Research. The book is part of the museum's invaluable series, Collecting Documents and Analysis, entitled Documenting Life and Destruction. The cornerstone of the series is a set of volumes looking at Jewish responses to the Holocaust, but it also includes a number of more specialized volumes. For those of you interested in learning more about the series, you might check out the interview I did about a year ago with Jürgen Mateus, the editor of the series and the author of a volume about the Einsatzgruppen in Poland in 1939 and 1940. Suzanne's contribution is distinctive. It examines the recently opened archives of the International Tracing Service and imagines the ways research in this archive might contribute to our understanding of the Holocaust. To illustrate these possibilities, she includes a variety of examples and narratives that are in turn moving, insightful, and occasionally chilling. I'm looking forward to talking with her about this, and so with that, Suzanne, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So let's start out um, maybe by asking you just to say a little bit about your background. How did you come to be a professional historian, and and how did you come to be interested in the Holocaust?
0: I have to say it was a bit of an accident, really. (laughs) I, I, I was studying uh, history at uh, University of Maryland for my PhD, and I was interested in American-German relations in the 1960s, and I'd always been, I had this interest primarily because of my own personal background, and my mother is German, and we spent lots of time in Germany as, as children, but there was no background at all on, on the Holocaust, and I took no courses mm. on it. So that was that was really a black box, but one that I was pretty unaware of. And so uh, I had gone to Maryland to work on the 1960s and German-American relations, and following my first visit to a concentration camp with a group of fellow students, really by accident, mm. I decided to start asking some questions, both at home and also intellectually and academically, and asked my advisor if I could switch my topic to, hmm. to post-war Germany, and specifically to German-Catholic thought about the Holocaust and, and Nazi atrocities. And Luckily for me, I, Jim Harris at University of Maryland was... A wonderful guy, first of all, and second of all, an expert on 19th century anti-Semitism, so knew something about issues relating to uh, prejudice and uh, anti-Semitism, so he supported it and I more or less self-taught, read everything I could and and ended up uh, <laughs> totally starting from scratch on, on the dissertation. <laughs> 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 which my husband didn't find the wisest move at the time. <laughs> it did elongate the uh, years of the dissertation by, oh, maybe two or three extra years.
1: <laughs> oh, you did well then. <laughs> so, so the book then, so I assume the book came out of the dissertation uh, uh, about a cardinal.
0: It, Can it you talk did. a little bit about it? Yeah, absolutely. I Well, my question, my question, the question I had that that first visit to I was at Buchenwald actually was mm-hmm. the one everyone has when they confront the Holocaust: is how is it that how could a person, how could a perpetrator or a collaborator or a um, a witness do something like this, participate mm-hmm. in something like this? Especially because I had such deep roots and have such deep roots uh, with my German family that just didn't fit with what I saw at uh, Buchenwald. And I was specifically interested about the Catholic context because I'm myself Catholic, a practicing Catholic still. Uh, children are being raised as Catholic in the church too. And my family has always been Catholic. And And that, as a child in Catholic school, I, I don't remember lots of the details of the things we learned, but the overwhelming message over and over again was love your neighbor as yourself, Mm -hmm. treat others with respect, love God and your neighbor, and to suddenly find myself confronted by a part of Germany, which was 40% Catholic during the Nazi period, that had done something like this, I couldn't understand it, not on an intellectual level, not on an emotional level, not on a, a moral level as a Catholic. I didn't want to go into the wartime period. That was a little still too scary, But Mm -hmm. I wanted to see, okay, after the Holocaust was said and done, and having now read and learned about the history of Christian anti-Semitism and 2,000 years of anti-Jewish history of the Church, how did Catholics see their own roles in the Holocaust after the war when Hmm. the newsreels were everywhere and atrocity pictures were everywhere and no one could possibly claim they didn't understand what happened? And I was lucky. I found a collection at the Catholic University of America here in hmm. Washington of the Vatican nuncio or papal diplomat to Germany in the immediate post war period from 1946. To he himself was born in the United States, but his parents were German. And Munch himself was very uh, Germanocentric, a German seminary, German circles. And so I studied his papers to see what German Catholics had to say about the Holocaust in that 15-year period after the war was over.
1: And the answer is,
0: <laughs> well, quite too? disappointing from a from a um, from a number of perspectives. Munch himself was privately an antisemite. Uh, he he wouldn't. Mm say so in public speeches, but in the private writings of his diary and in private exchanges, it it was clear that he held all the anti-Jewish prejudices of the teachings of the Church of his day, which didn't change until the mid-1960s. So that was was disappointing. German Catholics who wrote him were largely responding to something called a pastoral letter, or Mm -hmm. uh, I guess the sermon, for lack of a better word, that Munch had published in the United States before Easter, lamenting the suffering of Germans in the immediate post-war period. Critical of the Allies, critical of uh, starvation, accusations of starvation policy, and Deindustrialization. He was he was very pro-German, and so German Catholics wrote him saying, "You're our hero. You understand that we suffered. You understand that we were anti-Nazis, and those nasty Jews are really causing such a problem in Germany today. And you understand that too." And so that was disappointing. Probably most shocking, actually, was the American Catholic uh, response. Hmm. His his uh, Munch's discussions with his American counterparts, both on the military and uh, clerical level, were also quite anti-Semitic. And this was a surprise for me as an American. Um, I just didn't realize that the United States itself was was not exactly free of anti-Semitism mm. in the late 1940s and 1950s. So. He was, a, he was not someone we would admire in the post-Vatican Church. I'll, I'll put it that way. Or, I'm sorry, post-Nostra Tate Church. And that being the, the official teaching in the 1960s that uh, anti-Semitism is a sin and hatred yeah. of Jews is a sin.
1: No, it's, it's interesting. I'm teaching a class now. I, so, so for those listeners who don't know, I, I teach at a Catholic university and um, our general education program requires all students to take for upper upper-level gen ed classes. And, and one of the ones I teach is the Holocaust and its legacy, and I co-teach it with a theologian. And it is fascinating to watch the students try and wrestle with their own faith and the experiences of the church and try and come to some kind of understanding about what that experience of the church means for their own lives and um, for their interpretation of, of, of their relationship to their faith.
0: It's painful. It's difficult. It's still hard. It's I I wish it were a better history. It's it's very difficult. There's no question. I remember. I remember those first struggling feelings as in my early 20s when I first Mm. was confronted with this. It's genuinely difficult.
1: So you moved on after perhaps just tiny bit of extra time working on your dissertation. Um, and, and you landed at the museum. Yes. Uh, and I know a number, of, I've, I've been lucky enough to be at the museum for a couple of seminars. And, and, and so I know it's a, a few of the people there casually and, and I went to grad school with one of them. And I mentioned this to my students and, and I get an interesting response. They, they, they start out with, in the language of every 20 year old, Oh, it would be so cool. <laughs> and then they say, Oh my lord! How depressing that would be. <laughs> so, what is your kind of what is it like to work at the, a museum about the Holocaust?
0: Well, I I love it here. I've always loved it here. I've, I've always felt at home here. I I started actually as a, a fellow when I was writing hmm. my dissertation in two thousand. I, I had gotten a three month fellowship to be on the fifth floor where the library and the archives and the Mandel Center are to start tying up my conclusions and and writing things down. And and so colleagues that I have today were there in my formative years when I was trying to pull together Mm -hmm. my dissertation and turn it into a book. And uh, it's an extremely supportive environment. I I think uh, what makes it a little different from maybe a university setting or a, a, quote, regular office setting is Mm -hmm. all of us are committed to The subject. And so it it makes us uh, kind of all in in the same boat together. I will tell you, I still find after 15 years here, it's difficult to be in the permanent exhibit. It's a very tough exhibit. And I go into it when I am touring donors or Mm -hmm. touring friends. And I always come out struggling, and I don't actually walk through the exhibit itself on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's, it impacts, it really does impact me, which, and in the day it stops impacting me, I think maybe is the day yeah. I should
1: stop working here. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> well, let's turn to the book, um, and maybe the basic place to start. What is the International Tracing Service?
0: So the, the International tracing service is what's distinctive about it is it's the largest formerly closed holocaust archive in the world and Mm -hmm. it only opened in 2007 and it, it sort of defies logic because the war has been over since 1945 and one thinks well how can there still be a huge millions of pages deep holocaust archive that's closed that's ludicrous and in fact, uh, it's it's got a really interesting history. It was a tracing service, like the name says. Uh, it's lo- the original archive is located in a small town called Bad Erlson, Germany, near the town of Kassel, not so far from Frankfurt. And it's where the Allies chose as a location in 19. 19- 45, 46, because it was right in the middle of the four different occupation zones of Germany, the French, the British, the Russian, mm. and the U.S. zone. And the buildings were intact. It had been an SS barrack, and the, uh, in fact, uh, a very uh, high-ranking SS member is from that town. And so those buildings were centrally located and intact. And when Allied troops came across documents as they were liberating concentration camps or receiving letters, or uh, they sent them to Bad Erls in Germany for the purpose of tracing, so that when, let's say, um, a survivor would write, was looking for her brothers or her sisters or her parents. She would write to Allied authorities, and naturally, Allied authorities were flooded with such requests, and so they sent them to one centralized tracing service, the International Tracing Service. And for decades, this archive tracing service functioned as a way to find the missing, find missing victims. Mm-hmm. It makes it very unique, because uh, unlike most archives that are organized by uh, let's say, whoever issued the documents, whatever agency issued them. These documents are organized by an in- individual. They are put hmm. together to try and establish the fate of an individual victim. And so there might be on one uh, Esther Cohen a lot of information about, let's say, Auschwitz, from German documents so that the tracing staff could figure out where she'd been, what she'd been through, where she might have be now, et cetera. So it's it's an amazing resource, amazing resource, and has only been available since 2007, hmm. I should say, for students of the subject and for those interested. While the archive itself is in Bad in Germany, there are digital copies that are... Located around the world, Uh, Yad Vashem has a digital copy that's uh, usable. The Wiener Library for the Study of the Holocaust and Genocide in London has a copy. We have a copy here at the Holocaust Museum. The French and Belgian National Archives have a copy. Uh, The Polish Institute for National Remembrance has a copy. So research in these archives, one does not have to travel as far as Germany. Usually
1: Mm -hmm. they're a little closer than that. So that's one of the really interesting, or perhaps I should say that opens up one of the really interesting possibilities you talk about, because in reading your discussion, I was really impressed by the opportunities to think about these records and these events in terms of big data, uh, ways in which you can search these archives to provide new kinds of, to ask new questions and to get new kinds of information. So so, how, what kinds of new questions can you ask with these documents? Because you can do these kind of uh, that kind of research. Well, it's
0: honestly the sky is the limit, and yeah. and it was a struggle at first. I, I will be honest about that, because not only were these archives conceived as meant for tracing purposes. That's how they were used for so long. That when when the question came to us, well, okay, first and foremost, these documents are helpful for survivors and their families who need to know the fates of of their loved ones. But they're also useful for scholarship, and especially mm-hmm. in the future in the 21st century when we don't have eyewitnesses anymore, they'll be a really effective teaching tool. And then I. I was given the, test, the challenge from uh, my, my boss, Paul Shapiro, who opened the archive, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a museum staff member to to think about them differently. How would I do that exactly? And, um, I, I I tried to take lots of big steps back and I started at something of a personal level in that, um, that chapter two, you might remember, mm-hmm. is about a small town called Landstein. Yep. Uh, and that chapter came about because I was on my way to Germany to be by my uncle's bedside at the end mm. of his life from cancer. And I thought, I wonder if you put just the name of a small town into this keyword search, what you might find. And because I was going to Langestein the following week, I used Langestein, And I was amazed that in that, oh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documents from all across different parts of the archive popped up. And this is a town of 15,000 people that you can walk to with huh. from one end to the other in two hours. It's not a big place. And I thought, yeah. well, this is strange. And I just started digging and looking at the different documents. And it turns out that in this tiny town there was a slave labor camp for Jews specifically, very unusual on German soil. There were several forced labor camps for so-called Eastern workers or Ostarbeiter, for prisoners of war from all over Europe. There was a displaced persons camp. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I, I just I couldn't believe it. And, and so huh. many sites that I knew intimately appeared different to me when I read them or saw them in the case of a couple of maps in the mm-hmm. ITS. But that the lesson of that for me was, okay, one use of many is to do a regional study. One could look at a town or a region or a particular displaced person's camp or a concentration camp. or uh, if, if there are physical borders on something, uh, that is one way to use the archive. Take a, a camp or a town or a place and, and just look deeply across the archive at what was going on there during the Nazi period. So that's that was one approach. Another thing that my, again, my uh, my many in many ways my mentor on this, uh, Paul mm-hmm. Shapiro, suggested that I do. He said, okay, a quarter of this archive is, with regard to German victim, uh, Jewish victims, three-quarters are non-Jewish victims. However, this is the Holocaust, and so Jews are the central victims here. And so think about that. And, and that made me wonder, if one looked beyond the individual life of, of a survivor, a, a Jewish survivor, what could one learn looking across mm. ITS? And it was fascinating because rather than the usual, uh, maybe one can say one-dimensional story of an experience of hiding or a camp experience. Via uh, International Tracing Service archives, one could look across a range of experiences from normalcy in the beginning, to the forced labor experience of many Jews, to the deportation experience, to the camp experience, to the post-war experience, Mm. Uh, and that was probably the most revealing because I have to say, especially in the work that I do, I've gone to many talks of survivors who've lived rich lives and had families and and been very successful in overcoming a difficult past, and it's almost Mm -hmm. a triumphant story, and that feels good for the audience. The audience wants to think, ah, see... This is it all came out okay in the end, well, for most of the Jewish survivors in the International Tracing service, that was not so. They didn't marry and have families they couldn't mm-hmm. find steady employment men they couldn't even get out of Germany because they couldn't find a visa. No other country would accept them. They didn't have family left they were they were broken for decades afterward, and you can see that struggle in the archive as well, and that was very very moving for me. Mm-hmm. Another way that I wanted to think about this was using the concept of time. Mm-hmm. What if one took a finite time period? And 1945 is interesting for us, because as German historians, we always hear it's the zero hour for Germans, yeah. the, the Stundern, when Germans had to completely start over. And I thought, well, it would be interesting to go from January 1st, when the war is still going, through the summer, when the Germans are defeated and everyone is discovering what has happened, through the fall, when everyone's beginning to rebuild, what if I went from January 1st to December 31st to mm. see what the archive held? And that was a really interesting chapter to write. And, and then the last approach was—and here I think about students today and uh, teaching today— uh, it, not so many students are going to come to this with a, a Jewish background or necessarily even a Christian yeah. background. Mm-hmm. They're not going to have personal ties to this like like I did. And um, it's a natural question to think, well, where's my connection to this? Well, it turns out that in the International Tracing Service records, there are victims from nearly every nationality and ethnicity you can imagine. from the Middle East, from Africa, uh, from Asia, from Latin America, who somehow ended up in displaced persons' camps post-war in Germany or Italy. And uh, that was really rewarding. And I try to tell some of their stories as a way for, uh, let's say, uh, an Asian student to see, oh, my goodness, I have a connection to this, and then Mm -hmm. to go on and, and get deeper into the material.
1: Yeah, that's. I was really floored by that. That was. I I learned a lot from that chapter. Um, but in, and I don't remember if it's the introduction to that chapter. But in one of the introductions, you make the comment um, that most people see the ITS as simply a source of information about particular victims, and I thought, yeah, that's me. That's what I always thought until I read this book. Uh, but you point out that you can actually tell a lot about um, the perpetrators and. It gets to use something of an outdated scheme of the perpetrators and the bystanders as well.
0: Yes. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the uh, you, strong interests in the archive before it was open was actually by governments who were trying to hmm. figure out, find collaborators in their midst. Because, I mean, you know, today we know all the names of the big camps and the small camps and, and everything in between, but in 19. 19- 45 to 50, when, let's say, a Ukrainian uh, guard at, at one of the death camps was trying to get out of Europe and go to Canada or the United States, like the John Demianyuk, very famous example, who was just finally convicted in Munich, he could say the the name of uh, a death camp and the interviewer wouldn't recognize it and gave him the IR International Refugee Organization stamp of approval and off he went. And so, in the decades following the war, governments contacted International Tracing Service to say can you do you have a file on this person or that person, this perpetrator, that collaborator, to use in trial material and that's That's a really fascinating use of the records as well and on a more kind of ordinary day to day level, one of the most interesting things that I ran across was the story of a, a young teenage girl, ger- German woman, uh, not, a, not in a, any kind of category where she would have been persecuted in the Nazi regime, who just was mm-hmm. in a small town doing some kind of sewing job that she was very bored with. And in late 44, 1944, she got an opportunity to be a guard in the concentration camp near Hamburg so she took it as a career opportunity and I know you've had that Wendy Lauer on this show yeah. before she took it and became I think a head of a small unit of these female guards at a at this camp and it a British prosecutor asked her and the copies of the trials are in the ITS documents so, did you ever hit anyone and you know this the an answer that we're we're used to now, oh, maybe once or twice, and yeah. this very ordinary woman who I'm sure would have just been a seamstress and never worked in a concentration camp except for the extreme circumstances that she lived in and then once she was in those circumstances, she quite easily became a perpetrator, quite easily fell into cruelty and it's so. Yes, there's so much to say about ordinary Germans and ordinary collaborators of every ethnicity that are, that are in these, these archives. And just one more point on this because it was a difficult yeah. point for me. Uh, in the case of landstein uh, my, my mother's town, which is so small, uh, the, when Jewish houses, so-called Jewish houses, were set up where in the mid-1930s, The Jewish population in the town was moved to particular so-called Udenois or Jewish houses, their regular property was taken away. This was all done very much in the light of day in a very small town, and the labor camp that was established in an old mining facility was uh, right on the outskirts of town, and today is actually part of the town, so this was all very visible, extremely visible, and I had heard my whole life from my family, oh, we didn't see anything, we didn't know anything. Only after the war did we realize what all of this meant. Well, that's just patently false. And ITS really brings that home.
1: Yeah, you titled that chapter, Our Mother, Our Fathers. Where, Where does the title come from?
0: So that's, that's actually uh, something I'll uh, come back to because it's yeah. the movie I'd like to recommend. There was a, mm. I don't know whether you saw it or viewers saw it, but uh, there was a miniseries in German called Unzule uh, Vete that came out in Germany in 2013 and it is available in English. It's called Generation War uh, with English mm. subtitles. Uh, the producer is named Nico Hoffmann. And he was born in 1959 in Heidelberg. And he wrote this film. It's a film about four young Germans who, none of whom are particularly strong Nazis in the beginning of the movie, who are, one is Jewish and becomes the victim, one becomes a nurse on the front, uh, and two become Wehrmacht officers, and the things they do in the course of the war for Nico Hoffman, the director, it was a conversation with his own father, who was um, in the Wehrmacht. And I'm not sure if I'm trying to remember if either his mother or his father was very unrepentant about mm. the Nazi past. And and it was a conversation that he wished he'd had with them, is the way he describes the movie. And mm. uh, I've watched it quite a few times because I, I can relate to... Um, the title really I could relate to because when one grows up around completely normal people who have jobs and tend their homes and tend their pets and their children and, <laughs> and like to go out for Friday beer and go visit the local castle and, and are completely benign, for lack of a better word, to then suddenly see this ugly face on those same people and those same places and sites that you can't imagine that you just can't relate to is really is really something my i, I asked a lot of questions about my own family after i started mm-hmm. this work and the answers weren't good and they weren't very redeeming ones and that's um i always like to say though that's a separate kite that's a separate mission from what we do here at the Holocaust Museum. We here are a memorial to the victims, and we study the victims, and we study the behavior of collaborators and perpetrators, but the issue of working through one's past as a German with a Nazi family, that's a separate thing that I don't think it's fair to really mix in with the museum's mission. So I kind of snuck that title in there because it was more of a personal <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> journey. <laughs> I, I've never seen it, and I will have to—I um, will have to see that—that that, that it, that it comes from. Um,
0: yeah, it's—it's it's really interesting film, and, and it it doesn't pack a it punch. It's like the ITS documentation. These are people who do good things and bad things, and yeah. the movie, in my perception, doesn't apologize for. It doesn't try to say. Weren't Germans victims too? It doesn't try to make them into, right, helpless heroes. It it just shows the ugly, the ugliness that that we are all capable of, and that that they were capable of.
1: Well, one one of the features of this uh, series of volumes is is the document, the the primary documents that are reproduced in them. So I'm wondering if you can say something a little bit about about how you decided what Documents to feature in this, and maybe one or two that um, that is meaningful that are meaningful to you.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's it's funny because um, ITS is a very visual experience. If you're looking mm-hmm. at the digital archive at one of the Sites uh, that that I mentioned earlier, or uh, in fact, even if you go to Bad Erl in Germany, you're not looking at an original which is fragile. You're looking at this digital archive. The colors are very vivid, and the mm. uh, the markings on the documents are very vivid. And 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 it's it's not a black and white uh, history, and it's not a black and white archive. <laughs> so no. when we decided to do this book, and lots of uh, books have reproduced. Reproductions of documents. I said, but it's got to be color. It's got to be color. Mm. And naturally, that was more expensive. But I think for this particular <laughs> archive, the color is meaningful. Mm. It, it it tells part of part of the story. How I chose the documents. I I, I wish I could say I had some master method, but okay. I didn't. I mean, there are millions and millions of pages, and. Uh, when I struggled with this uh, my my mentor Paul Shapiro just said just just pick some good illustrative ones you're never going to find the best and the most interesting because then you'll be doing this book for 10 years and I can't have that. <laughs> so I followed his advice and you know some of some of the documents that mean a lot to me uh, to go back to the our mother's our father's point there is in chapter 2 um, I've got the book in front of me. I'm looking at this now. In uh, chapter two, I think it's document 2.5. Mm-hmm. There is a cemetery map, and mm-hmm. uh, if you if you look at the photograph, it's mostly black and white with a little bit of color to show uh, graves of French, uh, Dutch, Polish, Russian, and Italian foreign forced laborers who died on the job in Landstein. Either died or were murdered in in not good conditions. And mm-hmm. nameless graves not listing their names but just listing their nationalities because their names were unknown are drawn on this map which every mayor in post war Germany had to turn in to the Allied authorities. And that same summer, that that actually that same this was the first document I found that inspired this chapter because mm. I had mentioned I was going to Lahnstein the following week to be with my uncle. And I put Lahnstein in the keyword search. And this was the first document I opened and I on the far left side of the document, there's a nice neat German writing is the name Allheiligenbergweg. It's the name of the street, uh, All Holy Mountain Way. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's so interesting because that's the name of the street that goes right up to the church my parents were married in, huh. and right by Oma's cemetery. Huh. And then I looked again and I realized that is Oma's cemetery. <laughs> and then I looked again and realized, ah. Oma and my aunt are buried in Section F, and these forced laborers are buried directly uh, above and diagonal in Section G. And I've been That's in that cemetery my entire life, every year, just to pray over Oma's grave and never, ever noticed it, ever. So that was, that was really what made me decide <laughs> to, to keep looking. Uh, so that was one uh. document that really... Got me
1: <laughs> so the lesson of this interview as a whole is that historians and history is far less logical, rational, systematic process than we like to pretend
0: well I don't even pretend it's it's not very logical or rational for me at all
1: <laughs> <laughs> well I know you I know you've got another engagement that you've got to get to pretty soon um but but quickly um what kinds of things are there? Is the museum doing? I know, I know some of our some of the listeners in the audience are, are graduate students or, or uh, academics. Um, what kind of things are the, is the the museum doing to um, help people become acquainted with these documents and and, and uh, the research opportunities they offer?
0: Well, we are campaigning hard to to get the word out. I mean, lots of people in our field have now heard for, of the International Tracing Service, but usually in the context text of tracing and for uh, finding information on victims' families. And again, that's the most important use of the archive and always will be. But we were trying to get the word out to students, especially, who are always looking for new material and rich material that no one has used, Mm -hmm. that, hey, this is a treasure trove, and and what our end goal is, is something like, let's say, the Steven Spielberg testimonies are for Mm -hmm. Holocaust researchers who figure, well, whatever I'm writing about, I better check those. (laughs) <laughs> uh, because there might be something relevant in there. That's just one of those stops that I have to make. What we hope is that the International Tracing Service Archive becomes something Holocaust scholars think of the same way. Ah, I'm mm. doing a, a, a dissertation on this camp in Poland. Well, I better check International Tracing Service. Mm-hmm. Ah, mm-hmm. I'm doing a dissertation on Holocaust memory and when the American public really became aware of the Holocaust as a phenomenon. I better check the uh, tracing and documentation files of the ITS to see when people started writing in high numbers so that's what we hope and we are we run workshops every single year for mm-hmm. masters and phd students to get them engaged in the material we try to be a regular presence at conferences to talk about the material we are doing, uh, we've expanded internationally. We are doing a seminar for Polish professors in Warsaw in September, which is really exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. We've done a number of uh, of workshops in London at the site of the ITS Digital Archive there. We are going to Germany in a couple of weeks, actually, to do a workshop there. So we just hope that 10 years from now, this will be old news if someone hears this interview. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I hope that this contributes a little bit to that. Um, and I want to say thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's a wonderful book, and I learned a lot from reading it. Um, thank you. And the whole series is wonderful, so I, I heartily recommend it. Um, and so now the the frightening question, now that you're done with this book, uh, what's <laughs> next?
0: Well, actually, I'm back to the Vatican. I Yeah. I'm still a church historian. This was a detour. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, the mu- another exciting thing that the museum has is a copy of the 1922 to 39 materials from the Vatican that cover the papacy of Pope Pius XI, and we have had these here uh, in microfilm and digital format, not not in total parts of. Uh, since 2006 and i have been working on those to see what is the relationship between the vatican in rome the german catholic episcopacy and the nazi state from 1933 mm. to 39 and that's been that's been neat to get back to that so i'm back to my catholics and trying to understand and document what they knew about were attracted to about we're not attracted to about Nazism in that early period.
1: That well, it sounds like a fascinating subject. Uh, I wish you well on the research, and I hope that when you're done, you. you'll come back on the show and, and, and talk hope. to us about what you've Now, found. that
0: one, I have sworn to my children, will not come out until they're in college. <laughs> 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 they're like, Mom, no more books until we're out of that. <laughs> I understand. I <laughs> understand.
1: I have, we were talking before the show, I have relatively, they're a little older now, (laughs) maybe middle school and elementary school, and I always have to be careful what book I keep on my bedside table at this point. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, thanks again. Um, And like I said, hopefully uh, when you're done, we'll have you on the show next time. All right. Wonderful. um, Thank you so much. Have a great day. My
0: pleasure. Take care.
1: Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Suzanne Brown-Fleming, author of Nazi Persecution and postwar Repercussions, the International Tracing Service Archive, and Holocaust Research. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I interview Andrew Wolford, author of This Benevolent Experiment, Indigenous Boarding Schools, Genocide, and Redress in Canada and the United States. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.